Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 152, and it was recorded in Schenectady, New York last year at Union College. I sat down with Dr. Jennifer Mitchell, and we did this episode in front of a live audience. So there were students and administrators and other professors there. It was a really, uh, it was a lot of fun. We discussed uh, masochism and feminism and gender politic and literature and all sorts of things. Really fascinating conversation. Um, in, in that conversation, Jennifer mentions an extraordinary pile of books. So uh, I got links to all those books and I put them on the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com. So definitely if you are a reader or if you're interested in the stuff that we discussed or just one of those books maybe caught your ear, definitely go check that out and get yourself a book or a movie. There are a few movies mentioned too. I put those up there as well. Um, Speaking of heyhumanpodcast.com, there is an Amazon portal on the front page of the website. Uh, If you shop Amazon, please do so through the Amazon portal. That'd be awesome. It helps support Hey Human and helps to keep it ad-free. So that's a good thing, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Uh, iTunes, rate and review. Uh, iTunes just recently changed their algorithm. So some of the smaller podcasts are getting shoved further down into the the piles of podcasts. So when you rate and review, uh, it helps push them back up again. So take a second if you are enjoying Hey Human and give it a give it a post up there on the old iTunes rate and review thing. How's that for formal language? I have no idea what I just said. Okay, other news. Uh, I'm going to be in Seattle and Los Angeles coming up. And so do you know someone interesting or cool in Seattle or Los Angeles? I'm sure you do. Uh, if you do, uh, email me at susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Let me know. Maybe I could talk to them or maybe it's you. Speaking of Seattle, I'm going to be doing a couple shows there. Uh, improv shows, actually. May 1st at Unexpected Productions, 1428 Post Alley in Seattle. Uh, and then on May 19th at the Pocket Theater with a troupe of improv actors. So that'll be a lot of fun. You can get more details about that at susanruth.com. Uh, social media stuff. Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. And Susan Ruthism is how you find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for my personal stuff or my random whims of flights and fancy, things like that. I think that's about it. Uh, hope you are enjoying your spring. It is a beautiful sunny day here in Nashville, Tennessee. It's going to be a hot one. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, I hope you are well. And thanks for listening. Here we go. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Can I start the clapping? Dr. Jennifer Mitchell, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you to all of you for attending this, uh, this podcast. Let's get into it. Uh, so, Dr. Mitchell, may I call you Jennifer? Yes, I, I don't often answer to Dr. Mitchell. You don't? I mean, I do, but I tell my students on the first day to call me Jen. Okay, well, Jen, sexuality, politic, uh, in literature, that's your big forte, mm-hmm. stuff you're working on now. Yep, gender, sexuality. Um, I'm working on a couple of projects that I'm really excited by. Um, the first is this edited collection that I'm working on with two amazing women. Um, 
Lizzie McCormick and Becky Soares, um, about gender and the supernatural um, in the 1890s and 1920s. Um, there are all these collections about like Dracula, you know, like big man supernatural books. That's a good phrase. Um, and there isn't really a lot of attention paid to texts authored by women, even though women in the 1890s and 1920s were producing really cool, really quirky, like early werewolf novels, stuff about mummies, like bonkers time travel stories. Um, well, so women really spearheaded the spiritualist movement, you know, with their seances and their speaking to the other side. And yeah, and there's a lot of, um, like, theoretical stuff about women as gateways to other spaces because they were less hampered by reason and rationality, which is <laughs> it's misogyny. It's a burden, that reason yep. is so, um, so, <laughs> uh, so So yeah, women were responsible for lots of cool texts then that gave birth to a genre that they're not really credited for being a part of. Um, so I'm doing that, and then I'm working on um, a book about masochism, because that's what I write about primarily. Masochism? Uh, masochism. Mm -hmm. Can we explain for the listeners who might not know what masochism is? Do people still not know what masochism is? I think is? there are, okay. certainly. Okay, Fifty Shades of Grey didn't change that. Well, you know. I mean, that's not a great representation. It's no. actually, I would argue, not really a representation. Story of O is a great representation. I love yeah. that book. I read that in college, and, uh, and I'll never forget, I was reading, I was working at a gym, and I was reading the story of O, and one of my professors came in to work out, and he just gave me the one very high eyebrow and kept moving. <laughs> I, when I was writing my dissertation, I was reading this book called um, A Defense of Masochism by Anita Phillips. And so masochism, when you get pain, uh, pleasure from things that would cause other people pain. Um, there was a, I was on the treadmill, and there was a paragraph, like maybe 20 pages into this book, about, about masochistic experiences in everyday life. And one of them was like running, and the other was getting a PhD in the humanities. <laughs> and I looked around like I was being punked, like somebody had written this book for me on the treadmill. That's hilarious. Um, uh, but so there are lots of, I don't know, people talk about masochism um, often as sadomasochism. Um, so the kind of um, combining of sadism and masochism. So sadism is, um, when you get pleasure from inflicting pain, and masochism is when you get pleasure from experiencing it. Um, and I follow a particular theoretical model that separates those two. So um, a sadist a la like the Marquis de Sade, which is from where sadism gets its name. Um, uh, you can't have like a willing victim, I don't know. A participant who's really excited to experience pain is 100% not going to like turn the cranks of your sadists. Um, and so, so I separate the two, but in kind of contemporary culture, I think there are lots of ways in which they are put side by side. Um, what drew you to masochism? What do you mean? What? What drew you to masochism? Oh, um, circumstance. Um, honestly, it was so random. I was reading Blood and Guts in High School by Kathy Acker when I was in like a first year grad student. Um, and I was so out of my element, like so out of my element in this class on, on 20th century American literature that I was kind of not particularly enamored by. Um, and this book was crazy. Have any of you read it? Kathy Ecker, it's um, on the cover of the book, it said something like the, the epigraph was, um, or the blurb said something like, it's like playing hopscotch with a genius. Um, and I remember thinking, I don't even know what that means. Um, but she was often like in lots of critical spaces. She was called like the Xena of, of like 1990s American writing. 
Um, she's crazy. Her stuff is amazing. But it was this ridiculous book that had these really big pictures of vaginas all over them. Um, and it was her one of her sort of philosophies was about how you, every book is plagiarizing. So like you were just retelling stories that had already been told. Um, I and kind of believe that. Oh, I totally yeah. believe that. Um, it's not that many tropes to work with. Yeah. No, and so a lot of Blood and Guts in High School was a retelling of The Scarlet Letter, I think. It's been a long time since I've read it. Um, and I ended up writing this paper with a friend of mine, and we just couldn't, we like couldn't go, couldn't get away from this idea that the one of the characters in it was sort of continuously putting herself in these in these positions, these excruciatingly painful positions, um, but also that there was something inherently masochistic about reading a book like this, where it was kind of messing with your head, and every time you felt like you had a handle on something, a new image showed up, or a new story started, and it was just um, this painful experience. And so we ended up writing, my friend Katie and I ended up writing this, this paper by, about sadomasochistic language um, in Blood and Guts in high school. Um, and it was actually the first thing I ever had published, and I was ridiculously young, and my mom and my dad really wanted to read it. Um, and so my mom was like, can I read it? And I asked her if she knew what the word cunt meant, um, and so she didn't read the book, the paper. Because <laughs> that, that was how it stopped. Um, she was like, I, no, I don't, what is that? And I was like, then you shouldn't read it. We're good. She didn't know what it meant, or she wanted you to think she didn't know what it meant? No, she did not know what it meant. Okay, interesting. My mom was... A lovely, naive, innocent woman, still in lots of ways. So, what went wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> That's like a punchline of every Jewish holiday in my family for so, so many years. Um, I was left to my own devices too much. Yeah. I read too much. My parents always would say, you, you needed to spend your money on everything but books. And so they bought me like ridiculously inappropriate books my whole life. Oh. Um, so I was like the 10-year-old buying books that no 10-year-old should buy because my parents were like, you can read whatever you want. Because um, they weren't reading the books themselves, so they didn't know what you were bringing home? Yeah, pretty much. And I think they were also like, what harm good books do? Ah. <laughs> Which is a really... Ask that that's giant a, bonfire over there. <laughs> it's an amateur, an amateur mistake. I don't think they'd make it again if yeah. they were given the opportunity. Yeah, books have, uh, have raised some eyebrows throughout time, right? So you, say, you said something interesting. Uh, that you felt it was masochistic to, to the feeling of masochism. So it's not just a physical, let me hurt you and you will get off on that, but it's also intellectually masochism is a, is a thing. Yeah, I feel like I always have to explain to people that I don't write about the like sexy kind of masochism. Um, so I write a little bit about the story of O, but it's not the physical, it's not the like Fifty Shades of Grey stuff, it's not the, the kind of mediocre porn stuff. Yeah. Um, and 20 though, that's really titillating. I was to read that. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, and it's like if you've never read the story of Oak before, it is quite a text. Um, and it, I think. They think the Marquis de Sa wrote it, right? That's the. They, I thought that they. Because it's written by Anonymous, but. No, it's Pauline Rayage. Um, her, it's a, a woman in the. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes me happy. Because yeah. I, every. Back again, I haven't read it since college, so. There's a really great. Um, in the introduction to one of the editions of it. Um, there's a line in it about how, um, how the the writer is surprised that no no alchemist has been interested in studying whatever it is about the masochist that allows them to interpret pain as pleasure. And I'm doing a really bad job of explaining the the quote because it's actually quite a beautiful passage, and I'm not doing it. Um, but I do think it's an interesting, like a really poetic way of thinking about it as alchemy. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I read about sort of emotional masochism. Um, I studied, I worked on my dissertation committee with Lynn Chancer, who wrote this amazing, she's a sociologist, and that's clearly not my field, but she wrote this amazing book in the early 90s called Sadomasochism in Everyday Life. And we disagree about literally everything. Um, but the thing that that book did that was super cool was that it pointed to all of these kind of interpersonal relationships that we experience on a regular basis and was pointing out the sort of power imbalances in all of them. So um, the, her big example and the one that people are always like, oh, that makes sense, is this teacher-student relationship um, where, where, you know, the, the student sort of gives up a particular amount of power and the, the teacher is sort of in charge. And it doesn't always play out that way, but that in order you have to sort of embrace positions of subjectivity and submission in Childhood and adulthood. I mean, our parents, yeah. are we are subjects of their rule. And that our friends, there's always a hierarchy within friendships. It's very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so I focus on like those sort of interpersonal things. So all kinds of relationships where a lot of what I argue is about a kind of necessary masochism as a way of, I don't know, finding any kind of happiness or fulfillment with other people in your life. Like if you just, if it was just you in a room by yourself, maybe you wouldn't need it, but you and the world probably need a little bit of it. Well, that saying we are our own worst enemy comes to mind. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a professional songwriter. It's, it's pretty masochistic. <laughs> it's yeah. English professor. Yeah, exactly. I read student papers all day. Yeah. It is a weird thought to think, you know, the people who are so self-saboteurs that that you know, the people that are so high drama, all of that is, uh, that in its own way, I, I suppose, is a sense of masochism, that they're getting off on that feeling of creating, not not physical pain, maybe not the ouch mm -hmm. kind of pain, but emotional, traumatic pain, for sure. Yeah, there's this great Jean Reese novel that I work on called Quartet, it's the first book that she wrote. Um, uh, and it's a third person narrator, so the main character isn't speaking. But um, you are sort of in her head for a lot of it. And she, her husband's in prison, and so it's 1928. So her husband's in prison, and this older German couple, she's po Polish, Russian, ambiguous, like Eastern European, and this older German couple, they sort of like invite her into their marriage. Um, and it's a pseudo-autobiographical account of Jean Rhys and um, Ford Maddox Ford and Stella Bowen, because she was part of their, their little triangle for a while. Um, but this character, um, when you are in her head, she often will look at another character and assume that that character is thinking the worst. So even though she's, there, there's no actual like power on behalf of the other character, she'll be like, oh, she must hate what I'm wearing. Or um, she must look down on me so much because I'm so poor. Um, but it's framed in this way where she's always rendering herself a kind of victim of of um, somebody else's cruelty, but that cruelty is entirely... In her own mind. Yeah, it's made up, and it's something that she has full control over, and that's, that's the kind of masochism I write about, where masochism is itself a form of um, like agency and autonomy, and so it's the, the masochist in full control. So when you're talking about that person, that high drama person who's gonna retell the story that victimizes themselves sure. over and over again, um, it's the same, not the same, but it's a parallel dynamic where you have power and you choose to use that power to kind of like resubject yourself. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It, uh, it, I think it, I think so. it puts things in a different context. And when, as you move forward and uh, reading books, 
I think now when I look through the, the, the literature I read, I'll think, oh my gosh, that's that's some of that masochism. Oh, it's literature. everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's one everywhere. of those things where, and that's that's the thing. I mean, I started. It was one of the earliest papers I wrote in graduate school, and then it was like an inescapable thing where just every text you opened, you're like, oh, masochism, 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 you masochism. Could, you could dive in further and think that if you're watching television on a regular basis, I know Tyler doesn't do that, but <laughs> if you watch television on a regular basis, that that is its own form of masochism because it's constantly bombarding you with why you're not good enough, why you are not, you know, your erection's not mighty enough, your, you know, your breasts are not large enough, your lips are not puffy enough, your hair's not shiny enough, all that feeds into mm -hmm. that same dynamic in your brain of feeling unworthy, and that's a masochism in its own space by, based on what you're explaining, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the sort of willing exposure to it, right, where you're just like, oh, I'll still watch these commercials, even though I know what they're going to do to me. Yeah. Um, or that the, it's not actually the commercial that's doing anything, right? It's just your the way you internalize it as... Oh, I think uh, that they do do that. Well, sure, but it's but you as the... I mean, I'm assuming like people can watch Viagra commercials and not feel implicated in, with their own erections. Um, maybe. I don't know, actually. I feel like maybe this is not a yeah. good example. Well, Vi Viagra is taken a lot of uh, times by perfectly young, healthy males, right, to have even more of what they have because they're... And then they end up in the hospital. Well, that after four hours, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> But yeah, I'm just saying that 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 constant threat of not good enough is mm. overwhelming in our in our culture at the very least, but in many cultures. Yeah, and a lot of the the sort of like earlier texts that I work on in the 19th century, like um, some of the critics I respond particularly well to well with. I don't know. Um, they write about masochism in in female characters as a response, kind of to systemic patriarchy or misogyny. So. Um, and they're located in a particular trauma. So, um, uh, like Lucy Snow in, in Charlotte Bronte's Villette, she's one of my favorite characters um, because she gives no shits about anybody. Um, but the book starts with this kind of unnamed trauma and this, like, there's a shipwreck metaphor. Um, and, and people will read her kind of masochistic experiences through, like, this is how you cope in a world where, that isn't carved out, where space isn't carved out for women. Um, and so the only way to, um, to exist as a woman is to kind of embrace a position that, that is inherently painful. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that in psychoanalysis a lot. Um, and there are even, I mean, like disciples of Freud who write about um, sort of women being biologically doomed to suffer. Um, well, it's right there in the Bible. Uh, or, or in the vagina, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, yeah. So I feel like there are, uh, there are lots of ways of reading, um, reading masochism as trauma or mas masochist, reading a masochist as a victim in synonymous ways. Right. Um, but it's not, that's not really my jam. Well, so how does feminism and masochism play off of itself then? If, if it's kind of the same beast, the two-headed beast? I think it depends on how you understand masochism. So for, uh, if, if you think masochist and victim are synonymous, right, then, uh, then you can't be a masochist and a feminist, right? Because you're not gonna find power in that subjection. But if you think that masochism is a way of accessing agency, or for like the character in that Jean Reese novel, she has no power. So actually the kind of power that she has in con constructing a narrative, even if that narrative is of somebody else being mean to her, it's still a kind of power. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, like the, the actual, 
if you think that you can make a choice in terms of how you understand your own kind of masochistic subjectivity, then that's, that totally works together with feminism. It's about Yeah. I've options. interviewed a few sex workers, and it's, it's really a fascinating how they see themselves and, and their role in, in their jobs. Um, many of them find it very powerful. Uh, an empowering mm-hmm. to to be in the position that they're in, and um, I interviewed one sex worker. Uh, she's a high class escort, um, and she she said that she touches the untouchable and she loves the unlovable. And for her, it's very empowering to feel like she is able to do that. Mm-hmm. But other people look at her, of course, and think, "No, you're just a prostitute." You know, but for her, feminism is, is deeply interwoven with that behavior, even though for people who aren't sex workers, we go like, how could you subjugate yourself like that? And how could you go through this lifestyle? It's so dangerous. And at every turn, a John could you know, off you. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we've like, I think a lot of that has to do with sort of cultural prudishness and uh, oh, yeah. assumptions about values that are separate from sex mm-hmm. um, that I think are, I don't know, I think a lot of our problems have to do with, or not a lot, many, yeah, I'll say a lot of our problems have to do with our kind of... Prudishness? Yeah, our like cultural preoccupations with with only some kinds of sex being valuable and only some kinds of sex being worthy of conversation and, um, I don't know, my favorite article about it is, you know, almost... It's a little over 30 years old. No, it's almost 40 years old. That's weird. Um, Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex, where she has these charts about um, uh, like the kinds of sex acts that we value and how they're ranked. Um, and so if you think about sort of how sex education classes work or um, the kinds of, of, of um, images of sex that are in movies or popular culture, like we have very particular sanctioned ones and then everything else kind of falls by the wayside. Yes, and we are highly obsessed with what other people do with their bits and pieces, which is also a phenomenon that, that I, I think it's a human being thing. If they think somebody else is doing something different than what they themselves are doing, it's weird or unnatural or whatever the, the various things are. I mean, we talked about pornography last night, and it was a really fascinating conversation over dinner, which it's not really what, you know, I mean, it is kind of your realm, because obviously sex, sex politics, all that is part of it. But pornography is probably because it's so stylized, and I I think they think it's idealized. It's not. It's certainly, I don't know, it's not my ideal. I have... <laughs> we talked we, a lot about porn last we night. We did. We talked a lot about porn last night over dinner, and I, I, I say like, oh, I, I'll watch uh, cartoon pornography, for example, because I'm not worried about what anybody's uncle did to them in a cartoon. They're a cartoon, you know. But whereas when I watch a regular pornography, I think, oh my gosh, what? I go to the backstory immediately, you know, and sex trafficking and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as, uh, it can't, it's not as escapist. Well, I think porn, like I would put porn in some ways, it's like adjacent to some of the, some of the concerns, but a lot of it, I think, even if we're, we're obsessed with like what other people are doing, it's almost never framed in terms of pleasure, right? It's like never actually whether people are enjoying themselves sexually. It's like whether there's a scandal associated with it or, or, um, 
um, how how different it is from whatever kind of sex you're having. Um, but it's not, we, we aren't actually all that interested in pleasure, which I think is part of the, I don't know, a bigger part of the problem. I think it's wrapped up with guilt or religion or, which is I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure they're tied together, but I also think part of it has to do with, um, with the way that we frame sex as almost always a male experience. So like if you think about how sex education classes work, it's always like a focus on, on like male ejaculation. So like, what's gonna happen to you if you are underage and you have sex? Pregnant. You're gonna get pregnant, right? Um, and then what, and what else is gonna happen? You're gonna get a disease. And if you were in my health class in middle school, you're gonna die. Um, and there, and it's always, um, I blame a lot of people for those health classes, um, but it's always framed as like related to sperm um, in, in very particular ways that, that kind of remove certain agency um, and that separate the conversation about um, sex from a conversation about pleasure. And oh, I think yes. the sort of stylized component of porn is one of those, like it's one manifestation of that where, where there's, I mean, it's like different branch, I don't know, different branches of porn. That's probably not the right yeah, noun. It works. Um, different categories. There you go. Different categories of porn that have different, um, I don't know, different, like different kinds of pleasure at the center. But if you think about like porn consumption, I'm still assuming that, um, that like male pleasure is a particular focal point. Of sure. Porn. Well, it's as you said yesterday. It's the most obvious. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a podcast I listen to um, uh, by Cameron Esposito called Query, and she was talking in like the second episode um, about how when she was young um, and she first started watching porn, she was really interested in gay porn. Um, so like two men together, and when she was figuring out why she was interested in it, it was because you couldn't question the the pleasure or arousal of both participants, um, which I think is something that actually you don't necessarily see in, in straight porn or any any porn that doesn't have like aroused men in it, I guess. Um, and so the kind of visibility of, of like bodily arousal. And then also if you think back to sort of your meh high, middle school health classes. We didn't right? watch porn in health class that I remember. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, this was um, actually when I was in eighth grade, our my science teacher left the like put a video in and left the room, um, and I thought that I made this up until about five years ago when I was having dinner with friends, and and she definitely left the room and there was she put a porn tape on instead of whatever we were supposed to watch, and so for about like ten minutes we're just sitting in this health class watching porn on like a VCR and an old TV, um, and I really thought that it was one of those things that I made up. That you know, like it was like something else. It was something ridiculous, and in my head, it became this larger-than-life story. And then it was, it was bolstered by other actual people who were in that class with me. But um, you didn't know it was behind some glass. There were a bunch of researchers watching you <laughs> watch that, watching the kids watch that. I'd love to see the results of whatever study they were conducting. Um, she just wanted to have lunch and not deal with us, so she put a movie in, <laughs> and that's Dude, that's what happened. That's so crazy. Um, yeah, I had a really weird I mean, education growing up. I don't know what year that was, but back then I think people were not as hyper-concerned about what was being consumed in the educational system. They just sort of sent you to school and, you know, you came home at the end of the day. I mean, think about what was considered okay then versus now. 
that is not. <laughs> I mean, I think when she realized, when all of a sudden we were like, what's happening, you guys? And she came back in the room and turned to beat red and... Oh, she didn't do it on purpose. No, she had no idea. Oh. She, like, put in the wrong tape. Um, like she thought she was putting in something out. Why did you have a I have so many questions school. about her. This is also the, this is like um, oh my God. a biology class in eighth grade where we learned about every disease you could have. And I was, one of the girls in my class was convinced she had every disease. It's like the second we learned about the symptoms, she would be like, I have this. And you'd be like, no, that you don't have the parts for that disease. Like you can't possibly have it. Um, it was really, middle school was, was quite a time. Um, so it was she the, accidentally had a porn tape that she put into the... To this, that's hilarious and so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I had a weird, it's quite a weird school things. you went to. Although my seventh grade uh, biology teacher sold pot so to the students. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a different era, you know? <laughs> Whatever. We had a lot of scandals in my, in my yeah. high school. So getting back to, um, uh, you wrote a paper, you, I, you sent me a bunch of papers that you have written, and thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, well, it was really interesting, um, but the one that I thought w would be more fascinating to talk about in this moment uh, was talking about uh, the coming out story in modern television. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I thought that was really interesting. Um, sure. So I wrote that a couple of years ago, actually. Now, now it feels old. Um, but I, it was for an issue of the Journal of Lesbian Studies about um, like teen coming out narratives in popular culture um, and in literature and television. Um, and I used, in Guilty Pleasure Land, I used to watch Pretty Little Liars um, uh, with my, my girlfriends. And um, Is that I was, the Nicole Kidman one? No, that's a, I don't, I don't want to No, that's to, Big Little Lies. No, 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 this is lies. like, okay. this is, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> this could not be more different. Oh, okay. um, it's like a crappy teen drama that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Okay. Um, and one of the characters um, like comes out as a lesbian reasonably early in the series, and I was sort of, this was, I don't know, I'm going to do bad math here. Do you have an, do you, Great, thanks. That's really helpful. Um, <laughs> we are four thousand years old. Eight years ago, I feel like it was like two thousand and nine or two thousand. Yeah, um, and it was this thing where there were a couple of characters who had a problem with it, and her parents had a hard time, and then it was just like never really an issue. Um, and this tiny little town. It takes place in fictional Rosewood, Pennsylvania, where it's always fall, um, and it's. I mean, they're always wearing light jackets, and it's. <laughs> That's not any part of Pennsylvania I've ever been to. Um, but this tiny little town also has a great lesbian par um, that is referenced kind of constantly, and it makes no sense. Um, that, but it seemed like a real crucial part of the... A tiny town with a lesbian bar? Yeah, and with a lesbian bar that you could go to when you were in high school, and people would be fine with you there. Um, so it just, it was a really different kind of like queer space that got mapped out. Um, and, and so I guess I've just sort of been interested in, I don't know, sort of who and why we have, com like who we have coming out narratives for, what they do. Um, this is a thing we talked about actually in this room quite a bit in the fall after we went to see Fun Home um, when it toured in Proctor's. Um, and it's something my queer theory class in the fall, it's how I started it. Um, they watched um, the puppy episode from Ellen, the Ellen show, years and years and years ago, but that was like a huge deal when Ellen came out. Huge deal. Um, and the episode itself was like, 
like everybody knew it was gonna happen, but it happens accidentally. Like she accidentally says it in the in an airport over a loudspeaker, um, and and so I think we we often think that coming out narratives, like they reveal something that like exists before you come out, and then the narrative itself is like, aha, like I've revealed this thing that exists. And we don't necessarily think about sort of how the coming out narrative shapes the thing that it's like revealing. Um, and then in sort of popular culture, how representations of the coming out narrative, like who they're for, you know, are they for queer adolescents so there's a model, or are they for like open-minded straight audiences where they're going to say, oh, this is a story that has like exactly the amount of guilt I thought was gonna happen, and exactly the amount of anxiety I thought was gonna happen, and are the parents gonna be good parents, or gonna, they're gonna be shitty parents? Um, like, uh, is, does it line up with the expectations that I have as like a, a consumer of a particular kind of queer narrative? Well, I feel like it's the latter, almost always. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, that needs to change, obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, I think also a lot of that has to do with representation. So we still expect our queer characters to come out. We also assign straight actors queer roles a yes. lot, too, which is also fascinating. And transgender. I mean, the, the, that's a whole other situation where the transgender roles aren't necessarily... It's getting better, but not necessarily being played by transgender actors and act, actresses and... Um, strange. There's a great TED talk by um, a Palestinian comedian, Maysoon Zaid, um, who has cerebral palsy, and she talks about like studying theater and acting in college and wanting to be in a show, and then they finally do a production where one of the characters has cerebral palsy and she doesn't get cast, um, and they cast like someone who who is like sort of like perfectly able-bodied, and she was like, I do not understand how this could possibly work if you. If, if somehow like my body isn't right for this part that is literally written about my body. Maybe she's a bad actor. <laughs> but it's possible, I mean, <laughs> but it's also like, mm, I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. I think we... No, I, I was making a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we are, we like, I don't know, the, whatever the suspension of disbelief that says like you can be this thing and then perform as this other thing. And especially if you're performing as this other thing in ways that will appease my, like the expectations that I have for this particular narrative. I mean, we still let, like, um, Melinda Lowe has this, she's a, a YA writer um, based out of Boston and she writes every, every year she does a, a, a list of like diverse books um, and she chronicles, diverse like YA books and she chronicles them by like um, char primary characters of color and primary queer characters and how often you see like certain kinds of scenes in them. Um, and um, she like focuses on, I think, how often we, we can count that, right? Like we can say, here's a YA book with a, with a, a, char a, a main character of color and here's a YA book with a protagonist who is, who is queer and the things that we want out of those, like the markers that we look for, um, are things that. When you say we, who do you mean? Like the the sort of the broader public that the that is contributing to like whatever publishing, like mm -hmm. however books get published. Mm -hmm. um, so like not we like me necessarily, but we whatever the supply and demand in that world is. Um, but I do think that there's a way in which we, um, and I'll, I'll include myself in that way. Um, the I can't see that. I can't see way. that either. 
It's so, it's a very white piece of paper. Oh, <laughs> that's what that Religion. says. Oh, oh yes, yeah, okay. we'll get there. I will get there. Um, <laughs> you should have performed some I sort of cross thing. I every yeah. time I read that word. Um, yeah. Or sang something from like Jesus Christ Superstar, that would have helped. Um, or Fiddler on the Roof, that would have gotten me there. Um, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, but like we don't let we don't we let like our straight literary characters be other things aside from straight, right? So you can just be uh, like a well-developed literary character who has a job and has conflicts and has a family and has all this other stuff and has romance. Um, but if you have like the queer version of that, it's like that character is queer. And then all the other stuff is secondary. Um, yeah. And I think we often do that with characters of color also. Yeah. Um, that it's like this is a single defining feature. Um, and and so you don't, it's, it's a weird line about visibility and invisibility. Um, and I think we think that, especially in books for adolescents, um, that the coming out narrative is, a, is a, um, not only an expectation, but a necessary part that validates the, the queerness of the story, right? Or the queerness of the character. Like it's not, we don't really believe you're gay unless you have that scene where you tell your parents or your best friend or your brother. Um, and then we're behind you because you need that scene. Um, and Fun Home, the, the performance of Fun Home did that really explicitly. So like Allison's father, who doesn't have that moment, is vilified in lots of ways for it. Um, and she has that in college, that, and it's a funny song, and it's this like really lighthearted moment. Um, and then, you know, sort of like neoliberal audiences who are like, great, we're on board with, with queer people, get to go home and feel like everything about that is like the right amount of queer. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think about friends of mine who have come out and it's sort of, you know, over dinner or something and they say, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian. You're like, okay, pass the potatoes. You know, it's just, it's secondary to the fact that they're just a, a friend or a human mm -hmm. or whatever. But that's from my, you know, cisnormative experience. So from their side of the coin of how it feels to come out to a friend, you know, I, I see your point that it is, it seems to miss a lot of, uh, of what needs to be said if they concentrate on all the, um, uh, what's the word, uh, cliche. Yeah, it's the tropes, the like coming out tropes. Yeah. That if you don't have all of those things, it feels somehow less like you, you um, like earned your chops. Yeah. I don't know, we, we did, the students here did the queer monologue, did queer monologues over, over Pride Weekend and they wrote their own. Um, and so many of them were about the sort of anti climactic coming out narrative where they said, you know, like, I'm bisexual, and their parents were like, all right, like, what are you going to major in? Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and I was struck by how often that got repeated, but it's like a story that you don't really see, and when you do see it, it's criticized pretty heavily for either being not realistic or for not being dramatic enough or authentic enough or whatever. Not masochistic enough. Yeah, yeah, not, you don't have the, all of the anxiety that's going to render that story. Sure. Um, uh, like exciting for people or sympathetic for yeah. people. It's interesting. So let's get uh, back to what we were going to talk about as well is uh, religion and masochism and sexuality and all that stuff all bundled up into one big fun Ball. I mean, I can think of one extraordinarily masochistic scene in the Bible, of course. The, there are many. Yeah, but I can think of one in particular that's like, woohoo! Big, you know. But Do, yeah, there's on like, cross? yeah, that one. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure we're in the same place. Yeah, hang on. Um. 
That's a biggie. It is. But, it is. But it there's is certainly, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a bloody book. Uh, a lot it, of pain and a lot of suffering. It is. Well, and one of the things I think the big shifts from the Old Testament to the New Testament um, is the the sort of doctrinal um, acceptance of suffering as a, as itself a reward, right? So often you have, I mean, um, one of my like pet interests are the the uh, like medieval mystics, um, these women who lived in communities and who wrote, who had, who transcribed their their sort of like erotic encounters with Christ, um, and often they were there. If you haven't read them, I mean, like Marguerite Perret and Marjorie Kemp, and they are just these bonkers books about being like annihilated by God and being like speared and impaled by like the spirit of Jesus. And it's all about sort of like how you perform devotion, but it has these real physical, like corporeal um, And it was before images. batteries were invented, I might That's add. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, also before TV and before you could find this in lots of other places. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, and so, I mean, I think that there's, there are lots of, of stories in the Bible that can be read as, um, as masochistic. My favorite one is, is Samson and Delilah. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, that's my favorite. Well, it's, it's my favorite Bible story for lots of reasons, but um, it's the story, The first it was the first Bible story that I remember reading with masochism in my head and being like, oh, it's everywhere. It's like really everywhere. Um, and I'm Jewish, so the New Testament was a thing I studied and not a thing that I like absorbed yeah i mean we didn't yeah we didn't really talk about jesus in my house um that's a, well he was jewish that was my dad's like yeah <laughs> go to like christianity punchline yeah. like do you know he was jewish and yeah. i was like great thanks thank you for that um but the um but the samson delilah story i mean it's it's a really basic story that kind of epitomizes all of the things that interest me about masochism so you have you know, Samson, like big, strong Samson, where his, um, like all his power, and we're told, but all his power rests in his hair. Um, and then and then the the Philistines have a woman that they're going to, this is a real over, like reduced version of the Samson and Delilah story. Um, but they're gonna like back this woman to seduce him and figure out where his power is. And so, and the, the biblical narrative is pretty explicit, right? They have sex, and then after they have sex, um, she's like, so, where's your power? And um, every, it happens three times, and every time he gets closer and closer to revealing the source of his power. Um, and so, um, and every time the next morning, the Philistines show up and they do whatever it is that she has told them, that he, or that he has told her is the source of his power. So three times, right? You'd think after the first time, if you really don't want that to go badly, you'd stop telling her anything. Although the Bible, things happen three times a lot in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, um, another thing. Yeah, all the biblical numerology yeah, stuff. It's a really whole different that. wormhole. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, there's so much agency, and um, and Samson has all of the power in that story, but he keeps putting himself in these, in this position that victimizes him consistently. Um, and then at the very end, um, when he, when his hair is shorn and he's blinded and he wants to get revenge, the only thing he wants to get revenge for is being blind. It's not for having lost his power. It's not for being like physically overcome. It's not for any of the other things. Um, and so there's this like undercurrent of, of a kind of conscious active engagement in, in, like what Delilah is trying to do, where he's this willing, this reasonably willing participant, um, and 
part of the reason that I'm interested in this is that the story from which masochism is named, uh, Venus and Furs, the main um, protagonist in that story, um, his the the woman that he worships, her, his like dominatrix Wanda, um, uh, her bedroom is adorned with these portraits of Samson and Delilah. Um, and so there's all of this imagery about all men being betrayed by the woman they love. Um, and that that is a kind of foundational, like romantic ideal. Um, and it goes in some ways, it's connected to like early courtship rituals, um, uh, which is where like early sexologists, how they start talking about um, um, about masochism is like the performance of subjection. So you had you know multiple knights competing for for the hand of a woman, um, and that woman had circumstantial power, right? And so they were willing to kind of debase themselves for her mm. affections, and it was always and it was always deemed you know, socially acceptable because the end would reassert the power dynamic that you expected. So once she decided which which man she was going to um, marry, um, then the man would sort of reassert himself as the head of the household. And so that kind of like performative submission would be um, explained away because the ends justifies the means kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Samson Delilah story for me is like a kind of perfect example or perfect for and to that. Um, and then if you look at like the stuff that I'm working on, or I will be working on, I'm sort of working on it now, it's really new, um, but is about how often those kinds of like religious martyrs are become like icons for, for particularly masochistic literary characters in the 20th century. Um, so in, in The Well of Loneliness, Radcliffe Hall's big giant lesbian book from the 1920s, um, Stephen Gordon, the protagonist, um, consistently compares herself either to Jesus or to um, Cain. Mm. Like she's the, the the thing that like makes her different from all of the other like cis straight women around her um, uh, is this like perceived mark of Cain. And when she ends up serving in an ambulance unit in World War One, and um, like a part of a shell marks up her face, and she has this like super vaginal scar on the side of her cheek. Um, that that's like the literalizing of that mark of Cain. And when she's a little girl and she has her first crush on, uh, on her nursemaid, um, uh, not her nursemaid, her whatever, one of the housemaids, um, all she does, and the housemaid has like a bad knee, um, Collins, all she, that's, that's the maid's name, um, uh, she's just like, I wish I could be like Jesus, like your personal Jesus. I wish I could have like your pain in my body and that way your knee would feel fine and that you would love me. And I could prove that I was worthy of your love by suffering like Jesus. Mm. Um, and so you have like modernists were obsessed with religion in lots of ways. And it makes sense because, you know, they're writing in the often around World War One, between World War One and World War Two, and then throughout World War Two. And so all of that, that particular time is, you know, it's responding to chaos. And so you have all these, um, uh, like, reactions to kind of monolithic worldviews that said, like, oh, everything makes sense if you have this coherent narrative. Um, and so modernist writing, which was often going to play around with, with style and aesthetics and was going to make the reading challenging, um, was about disrupting those narratives. Um, and so if you think about, I mean, religion is in some ways like that giant monolithic thing where you can explain everything. Um, and so it makes sense that writers that were going to try and destabilize the things we thought we knew um, 
would use religion as one of the ways to do it, mm -hmm. right? To take the sort of big foundational claim that maybe we could rest on and play around with, with what we could use it for. Um, that's a really long way no, of answering it. that. And, and for no reason at all, um, it's making me think of, there's one whole season of True Blood um, where like the, the narrative of sort of the origins of vampires is Salome. Oh, yes. Um, as like, and there's just really cool sort of, we're, we're in popular culture kind of um, religious imagery, like what it gets used for and retooled and yeah. reimagined. Well, you mentioned Dracula. You want to talk about that for a minute? Because I think there's a lot of religious subtext in that. Um, in Dracula? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what you have when you're looking at supernatural texts, especially in the 19th century, um, uh, you're looking at like, potential challenges to a kind of domestic moral order. And in the 19th century, that was, like religion was one of the markers of that, right? Um, so if you watch, uh, I just finished watching Penny Dreadful, finally. Um, it's great. Nobody watched Penny Dreadful? Was that a television show? Or yeah, it's on Showtime, it's three seasons. It was like, it combined um, uh, like characters from Dracula and Frankenstein and the picture of Dorian Gray and um, uh, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, it's great. It's really, really, really smart. Mm. Um, I love Frankenstein. That's one of my favorite books from the Romantic period. See, I got that right. Yes. <laughs> and I would say I prefer Frankenstein to Dracula. So um, I think it's, it's just so, a more interesting story. It's a beautiful story. story. Um, it's so sad. Uh, and there's, yeah, there's the... I mean, I think that the religion in those contexts especially when you're dealing with like spiritualism and the development of like an interest in, in the cult. And it was all about like negotiating, especially in like the 19th century and the early 20th century, like how you can safely negotiate that space without you know, like proving that you were just gonna like hang out with Satan when you got home, right? Because there was still some expectations about propriety and about what you could and couldn't do. And especially as, you know, women, if they were gonna be mediums or they were going to host seances, there was like a, a reasonably limited space from which you can play with that stuff without being without hearkening back to sort of like the witch trials uh, yeah, and all say, of that yeah. stuff that yeah. rendered you a kind of um pariah sure it's interesting to think that the mediums were so revered and lines out the door and you put a carrot on someone's nose and they want to burn you <laughs> but also i mean i think money had a lot to do with it Right, so if you think oh, if about, you're wealthy because the, the mediums, can, you, like yeah. if you're hosting that right. party, it's like you're. I mean, yeah, you have a lot of money, and sure. so a lot of the the sort of like historical, which I mean, is about power, poverty and power. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, seriously, watch Penny Dreadful. Patty Lapone is, is Penny Dreadful Showtime. Yeah, it's really really good. Is um, it? Yeah, I would have to Netflix. Watch it. Okay. They should also sponsor your podcast now. <laughs> I mean, we bring them up in lots of different episodes for sure. Um, you said that the, that the, the Dracula stuff is something that you're working on moving toward. What exactly are you... I, I, I kind of want to dig into your research a little bit as far as what's coming for you. So that, that collection that I'm editing um, uh, is almost done, actually. We're kind of excited about it. Um, and the stuff that I put together, I mean, if you think about it, is I probably am doing like the most boring supernatural components. I'm talking about... Um, uh, like queer sort of time travel, kind of. Um, so it's a short story by Radcliffe Hall where Miss Ogilvy, like her main character, um, like, 
don't know, she goes to this random island in, in England and then wakes up, like has this kind of weird hallucination where she becomes a caveman and then has like really pseudo rapey sex with a cave woman and then dies. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much what happens. It's a um, and then story. It's really, she was, she was a party pooper, I think, and lots of, I mean, she had lots of, there were, her stuff is really interesting a lot of it is really sad and then um, Virginia Woolf's Orlando ah, um, so you have a like bisexual sex change that um, doesn't abide by the rules of time um, and so that I'm actually I really like what I've written for it but it's um, I think it's playing loose with supernatural I mean it's playing with supernatural not in terms of like other creatures but in terms of like not playing by the rules of our world so the sort of time shifts and messing around with that and and the sort of queer sex change things that happen in both texts that that are supernatural and like the very literal definition of the like not like perceived as natural mm. um and then um i'm working more on the i will eventually be working more on the martyrs and and masochism stuff um because i think it's i don't know i kept looking for when we were doing the research for this collection and we were looking for Kind of comparable books out there. There are some really interesting ones, but they're mostly about um, um, either the Victorian period or the modernist period, and mostly the Victorian, because the 19th century gives birth to all sorts of weird stuff. I mean, it's when Frankenstein surfaces, it's when um, it's when Dracula comes up, it's when the picture of Dorian Gray comes up. So there's there is this surge. It's Jekyll and Hyde. It's um, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's all the 19th century like gives birth to all that stuff. And for some reason, like the modernism and the supernatural, despite the, like it's framed, if people are writing about it, it's framed in terms of like what actual real life people were doing at seances, um, how they treated mediums, the kind of letters and accounts and journal entries they, they wrote, um, or in early cinema, um, where like cinema was this, or, or even radio where they were, they were presented as like gateways to other non-our world spaces. Sure. Have you been um, up to Lilydale? That's... It, it's uh, it's predominantly female, um, and it's a town that is mediums and ghosty people and psychics and all this. And where is it? It's Lilydale, New York. Geographically, uh, it's in the woods somewhere. Somewhere, oh like I don't know that it's too far from here. To be honest, might have to That's do like a, a little field trip. trip. Yeah, but it is interesting because because it's predominantly female, and it is a very the structure of the town is very women-centric, mm -hmm. and there are a few warlocks that live there. Um, but it's, I think it would be right up your alley. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. There's I a great like book about Lilydale also that I'll, I'll send to you that's uh, very interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things I end up, because I focus on literature, it's like the history stuff is so secondary, mm. and like the actual manifestations of these things, like real people's lives, it's so much easier for me to write about fictional people because they're not gonna fight with me. Um, and they're not going to complain. And if I get something wrong, it's totally okay. I get stuff wrong all the time. I mean, I get stuff so <laughs> I have plenty of students in this room. They will tell you I get stuff yeah. wrong all the time. I, I, at this point, I, I read so much stuff, and it crosses so many different genres and ideas that it just becomes sometimes a jumbled mess in my head. So, you know, what are you going to do? I did that today in my, my, in my <laughs> afternoon class. I asked my students if they could give me the names of the characters from like the last two books we've been reading, like all of the characters that survive by the end of the books, and they could give me like two thirds of them. And I, um, and I kept asking why, and a lot of it was just 
a lot we're, of info. We're juggling a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and if we're not paying attention, then, and we're distracted, then like the things that you've decided are important are the things that stick with you. So whichever character makes an impression is the character you remember. Yeah. And the ones that you're just like, ah, oh, this guy was like the last guy we met, so they might as well be the same person, so I might remember one of their names. Well, a lot of times in literature, they are the same person. I feel like, it, again, the stories repeat themselves. It's just a, the, the aptitude of the writer is what sets it apart, in, in my humble opinion. Yeah, when I, when I lived in Utah, I had a lot of students who, um, this is like the theme of my day today, or what part of my day today. Um, but who wanted to write like the next Hunger Games or something? They wanted to write sort of like dystopian genre fiction. And um, <clears throat> most of them were not particularly good um, at this. Um, and part of that was because they didn't want to read in their genre because they wanted their stories to be original, which I think, because Susan and I have agreed that's impossible, it's clearly impossible. Um, so they should, they should give up. Um, but. But the, uh, I'm just kidding, they really shouldn't give up. They should just read a lot of stuff and then write. Um, but one of the books that I feel like really crystallized that for them was Parable of the Sower, which like you guys just finished reading. Um, because they, it's, it's not a particularly complicated story and the narrative itself isn't particularly complicated. It's, it's a series of journal entries. Um, but it's, for me, it's super brilliant. It's an Octavia Butler novel. Um, it's brilliant and it's prescient and um, it made a lot of my students who thought that they were gonna be the next like Veronica Roth or Suzanne Collins or whoever, take your pick, um, realize that actually it's really hard to do this well. Um, yeah, but don't stop trying. No, and read, I keep can't. reading. No, 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 we can't read, just say it out loud, it's okay. <laughs> Trump violence, sex, religion. Trump violence, sex, religion. I feel like that's like a Red Hot Chili Peppers album. Yeah, I do too. Blood <laughs> sugar, sex, magic. Oh, okay. Well, violence. sure. Sex. Are there commas in there? Or is <laughs> is Trump a verb or a know. noun in that context? <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel as though it's all of the above. Um, no, I'm, I, I, I don't know how to, I don't really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my cue from something Sarah said in class today. Um, uh, so, th so there, my students are reading this technological dystopia by M.T. Anderson called Feed. Um, it was written in 2002, and you can very clearly, I think, tell that the influence is, is George W. Bush. So there's a lot of like kind of mocking of of the of whoever the president is in in a couple of speeches, um, mocking the linguistic capabilities, um, and the the book posits that the internet is basically just in your head at all times, and it's attached to your um, your like nervous system, basically. So um, it's not too far off. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, I mean, I think it feels futuristic. The first line of the book is about going to the moon for spring break, um, but the the phrase is, and the moon turned out to completely suck. So the second you have like, oh, you can go to the moon for spring break, like that's not where we are. But then it turned out to completely suck, and that's like whatever I saw yesterday. Um, and so I think it does that particularly well. But so the book is almost twenty years old now. Um, and technologically, I think we're there, but there's, like Sarah was pointing us out today, because there's one, um, it's clearly like a press release, and it's written about um, the president having to apologize for the president calling a prime minister of some, somewhere a shithead. <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, Sarah's laughing a lot, because she was just like, this is two weeks ago, like we had this two weeks ago. Um, like how did he know, right? That like when he wrote this book in 2002 that we were gonna have like a literal apology. And the apology is kind of preposterous and it's like, and, and trying to backtrack and say like, shithead is an American idiom. 
about the fertilizing like nutrients in your brain. Um, and it's a great set of sentences. It's really quite smart, but it also feels like right here. And I mean, I think even that, like it's not, it's, it's a word, right? And in this book, it's, you're supposed to laugh at it. In some ways, because it was hyperbolic in 2002, like you couldn't imagine W saying that. Um, but, but now we are like still recovering from, you know, the shithole, shit house, whatever, take your pick, whatever they were arguing about, what word he said. Um, um, but just the sort of, or even, even um, the tweets that are like linguistically just. Yeah, what I find fascinating about Trump and, and even with religion is that the religious, the, the, the evangelicals even seem to not care. They, they just say, oh, he said sorry and he's forgiven. Whereas anybody else, he's, he's getting away with so many things. It's, I, I can't figure out if we, are, we don't care or if we're exhausted. Um, granted, there's plenty of people screaming in the streets, but I don't know. It's a very weird time. It's, it's writing itself like some bizarre novel that I would have read in high school and thought, this will never happen. <laughs> That's crazy. how I thought when I read Feed when I, you know, like whatever, 15 years ago. And I was like, this book is so smart and kind of heavy handed because really we're close, but like it's never really going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's in some ways about, like I think one of the other things, the, the, in some ways the, maybe it's not the flip side, but but it's it's part and parcel of the same issue. Um, like giving, giving space to not be embarrassed by opinions that used to be considered like, archaic or dangerous or things that you were like, you know, you apologized for your like kind of racist grandma um, before she met anybody. And you were just like, it's my like kind of racist grandma. I was like, sorry. Um, yeah, but it was, and it was this thing that would only ever happen in like, you know, a dinner, din like a family dinner, but you'd still feel compelled to apologize for whatever could possibly come out of her mouth. Even if nothing did, even if she was like perfectly well behaved that dinner, um, it was still this thing that you felt like you needed to apologize for. And I think now we're in that space where it's like unapologetic. Um, uh, but but there's something too about the thing that I think feed actually that gives me a different kind of anxiety is and it's underneath this is a vilifying of like education yes. and um, intelligence and being articulate and the kind of authority that I think we used to associate with language. Um, but there is an othering going on with with uh, with that I think because our education system you know, in general, is in the toilet as far as public schools across America. Things are, there are still books being banned. I'm from Tennessee, where just a couple years ago, there was something on the ballot to stop critical thinking. That was on the ballot. Because they believed that if you were critical thinking, that that next step would be you would challenge your parents and your clergy. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't have that. Now, I did get shot down, thank God, but the fact that it even made it to a voting situation is beyond insane to me. I mean, there's a reason, right, why so many, like, political dystopias or totalitarian regimes, like, burn books. Of course. Right? That was my, my bonfire joke that nobody got because it wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, but also close. Um, uh, yeah, I heard, it's it's that thing where you, like, close. laugh, and you're like, am I allowed to laugh? Because maybe tomorrow they're going to burn books. That's true. Um, yeah. um, but, and, and there's this real, like, uh, like double-edged sword that's there, right? Because you're, at the same time, you're sort of decrying like books as awful 
you know, if you're so threatened by them that you're going to set them on fire or you're going to ban them, um, then that's also a testament to how powerful they are. Um, this is also what Melinda Lowe, like I mentioned her before, but but she has some really great articles about um, about banned books and about um, like Sherman Alexie's The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian um, for the last couple of years was like the most banned book in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great, if you haven't read it, it's a fantastic book. Um, but the reasons that it was or the reasons that it was cited as being banned, like it has masturbation in it and it has foul language, but it also has like alcoholism and um, child abuse. Um, but we know that children, or whatever, teenagers, he's a teenager, um, they definitely don't masturbate. Nobody masturbates. Um, there's definitely no alcoholism that they are exposed to because nobody drinks. Um, there's no child abuse because everybody loves their kids. Um, and uh, you don't curse until you're 18. Uh, I mean, it's like these sort of preposterous kind of ideals that 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 presume that exposure to a thing um, in a fictional context is corruptive. Um, but we so we'll ban that. But we won't actually deal with the systemic issues uh, that have to do with you know like why alcoholism is rampant in Native American reservations and how like complicit you know like our government is in that, um, or or how. Um, I don't know. We don't, you know, it's, it's, well, we'd much rather give you a a pill than figure out why you're having the, you know, the issue, right? That's, we are a placating system. Well, we'll deal with the symbol, not the, like, we want to deal with whatever, whatever the, the most surface level thing is that we can say, like, we'll put a bandaid on it and then it'll solve the problem rather than actually deal with the bigger picture issues. So instead of having conversations about, about like what to do when you're in a community where there's like kind of rampant child abuse, right? We won't have that conversation, but we will definitely not let kids read books about it, where actually maybe they will feel less alone. That's a too soon argument after a, a school shooting or a massacre like in Vegas, where oh, it's too soon to talk about gun control. It's it's fascinating to me that that's the response. Um, I mean, I thought that I, I was teaching a class in the in the fall. Our required freshman class is called first year preceptorial. And I taught two different versions of it. We were talking last night about the one that I did before that, which is about professional wrestling. But in the fall, I was teaching one on monsters and monstrosity. Um, and um, the Las Vegas shooter and Hugh Hefner, like the Las Vegas shooting and Hugh Hefner dying happened the same week. Um, really? Yeah, it was, I think it was exactly the same week. And I printed out a bunch of different editorials about both both instances that talked that, that used particular language that had tapped into whatever my like whatever we'd been talking about with serial killers and um, like a graphic novel about Jack the Ripper and um, The Walking Dead, you know, all this sort of like how we use monster rhetoric as as um, like metaphor. Um, and then I was like, I know this just happened, but here, look at these articles about the Las Vegas shooting and look at these like obituaries or eulogies for Hugh Hefner. Um, and it was, it ended up being a really like somber class, but I think actually a really great class because it was, it's the, it's not too soon. It's just the kind of conversation that maybe I think we need to have more. Oh, I agree. I think absolutely we need to have it more often, but I'm also big on communication. Um, there's something to be said too, when you think about, um, something you said a second ago that made me think about, uh, the idea that there are all these topics like alcoholism, you know, child abuse, rape, uh, just whatever it is, and people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. It makes me uncomfortable, or it's it's not in the realm of my 
religious belief, which would be, you know, it's all going to get sorted in the end or whatever it is, whatever makes you feel good. But I think there is a, an issue that we have, we are losing the art of communication. We are losing the art of connection. We are losing the, um, the beauty of empathy uh, with ourselves and with each other. And, and when you lose those things, and I think rapidly. I mean, our phones and all that stuff. I I was walking in Manhattan, and everything was tucked away as I was walking down the street, and I was taking in everything around me, and uh, everyone was on their phone, looking down, running into things, and not paying attention. And I thought, how many conversations are not being had because of these devices? Or how? I mean, I feel like I was. I don't know, maybe five years ago, I was that judgmental person in a restaurant that looked at a couple with a kid and the kid was on an iPad and I was like, man, talk to your kid at dinner. And I feel like now I have friends who have children and it's like, oh no, man, you'll do anything. Um, So like there are... Yeah, but our parents didn't give us devices, right? We had to learn the art. It's an art form and yeah, there's a learning curve and there's a painful moment that you develop into a person who is an asshole child to a non-asshole child that can have a conversation. And yeah, that's a... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily like the reliance on technology that's the issue. I think it's the, the technology as surrogate for something else. Right? It's not just like... Well, maybe the parents don't even know how to have the conversation. I'm plenty... Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the bigger issue actually probably is, like, if, if it's, you know, parents and a kid and everybody's on their phone at dinner, right, then, like, what gets modeled? I mean, we were right. talking about this in class today. Sure. Like, how, where you have... Like, how you learn to model behavior. Um, if nobody... If there's no adult in your life that models a kind of behavior, like, how do you figure out how to be a functional adult? Um, and, like, you know, there's a book that we're not reading this, this term... Um, actually, I don't think you read it either, Deanna. Um, uh, Never Let Me Go, um, the Ishiguro novel. Um, but a lot of the characters in there, they like, model their behavior. I mean, this happens a little bit in Feed, but they model their behavior. Um, and they're not dumb. <laughs> I feel like I need to qualify that relative to the Feed characters. Um, but they model their behavior off of, of characters on television um, because they don't. there's no other adults for them to look at. Um, and, and so thinking about sort of how, like, what we model but we do that already. We do that now, don't we? I mean, I'm, people model off of what they see on television. Mm-hmm. There's that famous Charles Barkley quote where he said, "You know, I am not your role model, but guess what? You are. I mean, if you are in the public eye, you are. We are mirroring all the time. Mm-hmm. We're constantly mirroring everything around us, and from from small children, you know, on up. And I don't know about all of you in this room, but my family situation growing up wasn't necessarily ideal it certainly it had its its issues and i still had to develop into a human being that was socially functioning and and all that um so i think that we do give ourselves excuses why not to be something instead of digging in and becoming something um i mean i think that in some ways we started talking about this last night too with and to, to go back to porn, which is, I guess, like my thesis statement, kind of always. Um, but but I don't think that the problem is like v- like porn as object um, or thing that is consumed. It's it's that that we separate porn consumption from any kind of mediated talk about like what is being performed, how that gets translated into real life. I mean, you see these articles all the time about women being you know murdered by because they say no to going out with somebody or. Um, 
like who who are you know assaulted or raped or all of these things um, because not because um, the the explanation is like well this is how I thought things were gonna be because I watched Fifty Shades of Grey or I watched this particular porn or whatever um, and it's like we don't we separate things in so many ways into like private categories sure and it's that, like compartmentalizing yeah that That's... that we don't we're not like okay well so like there's like porn that is super stylized, that is like aggressively and not realistic. And if you are watching that and consuming that like regularly from when you're whatever, 10, I don't know how, I don't, this is not a good example. I don't know, how old are people, never mind. Not, not, um, no, there's, there's research. Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's, it's really, they're, old. yeah, they're it's young. Adequate. And, and then, accurate, and that's what you, adequate, and nobody talks wrong. to you about it. And then all of a sudden you're however old you are when you're gonna lose your virginity and it doesn't, like you think it's gonna look like a porn and it doesn't and you have all the rage or you try to make it look like a porn and it's ba I mean like everything about it there there's like no matter which way you flip that I think there's a problem um, and it's the same thing right it's like it's it's the if the solution is always to be on your phone or to have the to, to have access to technology or whatever um, without saying like okay so you know, you can be on your phone and there's lots of information on your phone, but sometimes when you sit down to have a conversation with somebody, you should put your phone in your pocket. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked about that with my afternoon class on, on Thursday about their anxiety about where their cell phones were relative to where their bodies were because they move around the classroom a lot. And um, the, the male students in the room would like have their phones in their pockets, but a lot of the female students in the room would have their phones in their bags. And you could just sort of like see them glaze over when they're thinking like, I wonder how many emails are there or whatever. Like well, this sort of touch the dopamine in our brains. Now we have rewired our minds and same with that is my biggest mm -hmm. concern. I think with parents that placate their children, I get it. I don't have children, so I don't have a leg to stand on as far as what is right or wrong in parenting. However, I do read the research of the neuroscience and how when you hand that device to a small child whose brain is developing until they're, what, 21? The brain is in, in rapid process of development. I feel like that, I know some 40-year-olds. Yeah, that, that you're, uh, you're rewiring the way the brain thinks. And now you're an app guy, right? You invented an app. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting to me. You know, so you, you're... You want people to become engaged with this technological device, and it's important to your well-being and all that. And far be it for me to say that many things in my life are computer-oriented. Not quite a boyfriend yet, but I know I'm on the list <laughs> to get one of those. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> but it, it is a, it's a, it's a, I think there's something to be said when you said nobody's there to talk about it, you know? just look at this device and that's it, I'm checking out as a parent versus, okay, maybe look at this device for 10 minutes or don't look at it for dinner or you know what I mean, things like that. There, there's a culpability that is required as humans to raise up other humans. And I just think that that's, I mean, I'm gonna get emails, I'm sure, but I think it's lazy to be like, I don't wanna deal with this. You're being a little shithead. So here, watch this television show on your computer. You know I don't know. I mean? I, yeah. I, and I don't have kids. I don't really get, but I have nannied and I've nannied four kids at once. And it is a shit show. It is. But you still have to find other ways to engage them. Stories, making little puppets, play some music, you know, whatever it is that's actively engaging their minds. So I also, I have cats. 
feel like it's really important to emphasize the fact that I have cats and right. zero children. Right. Um, uh, but I also think, I mean, I think that one of the things, like, I think part of the reason, well, there are lots of reasons why I don't have children, but, but I, <laughs> that's, that's maybe a different conversation. Um, but I feel like for a long time, um, I looked at my mother, who's amazing, and I thought, like, I will never be as selfless as she was. Like, it just, I don't have it in me. I'm not as compromising. I'm not as willing to sort of put other people's needs above my own. Um, That's and something I, to know about yourself. And I, yes, I think so. It's better now than six kids in, and I'm just yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> fend for yourselves, guys. Um, but, but I do think that there's also, I think my mom understood the kind of mother that she wanted to be in terms of like a particularly selfless model that didn't that that tied her mental well-being to her children Mm. in a way that I think actually that now we are focused on kind of individual well-being or at least we we think that we are in ways that that I think I wonder if things would have been different if somebody told my mom often like go like get your nails done Mm -hmm. like take an hour like you can put like you know like you know, I, th- I think that we have different expectations. Perhaps. My um, mother was a terrible, I mean, I shouldn't say that live on the podcast, but she had not a nurture, she'd be the first to admit, not a nurturing bone in her body. And when I was being a shithead, uh, she would say, go read a book. Only a bore is bored. That was like her, she's <laughs> like, be, be gone with you, child. Go figure it out. You know, and that's not necessarily good parenting either, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting, I just, I think we're getting... Our our intellect is being vilified, mm-hmm. right? Uh, learning is vilified. I think that we are placating ourselves with this this machine that is not only making us drool, but it's also reprogramming how we think so that we don't look at our monsters the same. We can compartmentalize. Look, I have friends that, and nobody in my family, but I have friends who voted for Trump, and you know, as is their inalienable right to do so. Mm-hmm. And I say, but what about the grab by the pussy, or what about this or that, or the fact that, you know, you know, whatever things you can come up with. And it's the same reason why I think people can say, well, this is my lover, Joe. And Joe's great. I mean, he beats me on Mondays. But on Tuesday through Sunday, he's an exceptional lover, and he makes dinner. So I've compartmentalized the fact that Monday sucks for me, and I'm going to keep dating this guy, right? So, and many of us do that. We have this compartmentalizing aspect of our, of we do it with our friends, we do it with our family. Oh, that's Uncle Joe. He's gonna say some weird stuff at Thanksgiving. So just, you know, but we love him anyway. I mean, that's just what we do as human beings. And I think we do it now with our politicians. We do it with our, you know, we do it everywhere. We do it with ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think, we absolutely do. I think that there are really interesting ways too in which kind of like popular culture tropes contribute to a lot of that compartmentalizing, um, especially in terms of like dating and romance and, and mm. whatnot. I feel like I had, you know, really like, I have friends who are, you know, some of the smartest people I know who I used to want to have interventions for while they were dating in New York. And I would just, you know, I used to have like this letter already written like, dear friend, your relationship with Steven affects me in the following ways. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, uh, because it was this really weird internalizing of, of, um, of 
like love is supposed to be like really nice sometimes, but it's also supposed to drive you crazy. And um, you're supposed to really wonder whether somebody actually likes you. Um, and it's not legitimate if you don't feel like your heart's gonna break every 15 minutes, right? Like, and I think that that's, it's gendered in particular ways. Um, and I think it's targeted to, to women especially. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that there are, like we're told to compartmentalize and to prioritize certain readings of situations as like more real than all of the evidence to the contrary. I mean, it's why like he's just not that into you is even a thing, right? Like right. why why we even have a book and a movie and a franchise that's basically meant to say like, everything I've done has proven to you that I don't really want to date you, <laughs> but you're still here because I texted you once in the last three months and that's the thing you're holding on to. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that that's, it's, there's a market there of like how to compartmentalize effectively, um, or not effectively, how to compartmentalize willfully. But um, it, you put, the, you hit the nail on the head though when you said, you know, especially as women, and men probably have this too, but especially as women that we're told that this is this paradigm we're supposed to grow up and and have the babies, you know, get married, have the babies, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you shake your head because you're like, eh, nobody told me that, you know, or whatever. But oh, no, it, I, heard that. I got the, told that. Yeah, that information is, is, is everywhere. And even mm -hmm. though we live in a, a modern time where, of course, women are doing it for themselves, you know, they're getting jobs, they're not necessarily having children, they're not even necessarily getting married. And, and now there's the next generation of people who are like, marriage, why bother? You know, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. I don't care. The kid, you know, we're, we're going to see a drop off perhaps. But there is that story that is told to us. You know, yeah, we still I, have bad wedding television. That's like, it's still like my, twenty year old girls who are going friends. like, I want a Cinderella wedding, yeah. and you're just like, did Obsessed you read Cinderella? Show, my it's not a great story. Yeah. Who wants to be her? Yeah, people, um, people love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But we're also sold this. It, it's very interesting too. In in as America is the poverty is growing, right? Mm. And the the shows where they depict exceptionally wealthy people are are getting there are more and more of those right that are that are hitting the airwaves mm -hmm. and it's a really weird thing so it's i can't quite figure i think about this stuff a lot like this dynamic of okay we are living in a society that is feeling pretty crappy about ourselves the communication is not good uh education vilified not a good idea you know we've got these politicians that are basically can just look at you lie and say so what we're lying big deal you know like this weird it's like this weird confusing movie i'm watching i don't know where i was going with that i went off the rails a bit but i just it's it's just it's mind-blowing to me i just i don't know what's happening i well, don't know what's going on oh i know what i was going to say with these rich the tv shows where people are like look at us we're wearing these five thousand dollar wedding gowns and i have this big boat and there's some show that my friend watches that is uh uh buying property multi-million dollar property buyer person i don't know I'm that's what it's called that is 100 <laughs> yeah. percent the title of yeah. that show that's a, the well, it's called in Russia, probably, but uh, <laughs> it's anyway. It's all these shows that are like, oh, look at what the haves have, but you're a have not. Mm -hmm. But you can see into the television screen and kind of feel what the haves have. But it's creating this sort of anger, this dystopian 
you know, Hunger Games feeling, you know what I mean? This is one of the reasons I don't watch TV is because I think it's unhealthy for the psyche because it's always telling you how, what a piece of shit you are, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I watch a slew of really particular television and a lot of the television that I watch is like watching people who I think are dumber than me make bad decisions. Um, which but, is a, which is a particular... Why? What does that serve you? Oh, See, oh so I have what, lots of theories yeah. about this. Um, um, but there is, it, it, there's something really like, like, I'm not interested in any of the stuff that you mentioned um, in, for lots of reasons, because I, like, don't really care. The reality care. show stuff? The, the, like, rich reality shows, yeah. right? I don't, like, I don't really care if you're going to, you know, the, you, this is your fourth boat, and you're going to get the whatever. I don't even know how big boats are. This is not going to go well. Like, a 30-foot boat, is that right? Like, 30-foot, 50-foot, I don't know. Pick a, pick a measurement. Um, like, that's, that doesn't really interest me. I yeah. like this sort of... I don't know. I like like I like some scripted shows about murder. That's a real particular thing. Um, I, I love also murder. like murder's a big I'm yeah. Big I watch a lot, of, me, yeah. a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I like you know I watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race um, because I think that there's a kind of like I like the pre VH1 like non sanitized version because I think there are some really brilliant things that are happening um, and I think culturally awesome stuff happens and it's beautiful and there's talent and and. Um, drag queens are stunning and campy and fabulous. Yeah. Um, and then I watch like the real world road rules challenge um, because that is watching people make bad decisions for not what amounts to be a lot of money. It's a gladiator, um, right? Yeah, it is. But it's like, like the stakes for gladiator made sense, right? Like it was like you're gonna Death. kill somebody or you're gonna die. Here it's like <laughs> you're competing for twelve thousand dollars and once taxes get them away. There's, there's a spoof of The Bachelor called Burning Love that I the love guys it. from the state, I, I did love watch Burning it. Love. Um, and the last season of it, if you haven't watched it, it's like um, the guys from the state, Ken Reno. Okay, she's pointing at her watch. Okay, um, yeah, Ken Reno. We're, we're off the rails completely. Yeah, yeah, this, this it's fascinating place. though. Um, but the final season is, is, so the first season is like The Bachelor, the second season is The Bachelor, and the final season is um, like called Burning Down the House, and they bring back all their competitors, and they're competing for $900. Um, and, <laughs> It's a very funny it's show. It's brilliant because, yeah. the, and they're talking about what they're gonna do with that nine hundred dollars. One of them's like, "I'm gonna start a skydiving school," and it's like, one of them's like, "I can finally buy a house," and you're just like, "Oh, this isn't." It's like you nailed it, right? Because yeah. it is this this like when you take taxes away and when you take all this stuff away, like you're really, I mean, you know, you're competing for twelve thousand dollars in a challenge that you're gonna split three ways and then. But like, what are they competing for in those real shows? Their their emotional currency is what yeah, they're competing for. Yeah. They want that fame or they want to be beloved or it's that thing. I am not your hero. I am not your idol. But they that's what they are competing for. It's not the money. They they're. We are we yeah. are now in that. What was that show with um, Richard Dawson and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Running Man? It was, uh, do you yeah. remember that show? And everything was televised. And I mean, I guess The Hunger Games yeah. also speaks to yeah. that. The Hunger Games is like 12 stories mushed together, of course. Um, but anyway. I but mean, it is. It's, it's, it's fascinating. a spectacle. Yeah, like, it's a spe exactly. Yeah. It's a spectacle. Well, we have now talked about everything we could possibly <laughs> talk about. Jennifer Mitchell. <laughs> Tell people where they can find you. Questions. Yes? Oh, yeah, they're questions. Wait, there's people here? Oh my God, where did you people come from? <laughs> Do you guys have any questions of the 8,000 topics we covered today? So many things. <laughs> anyone, anyone? Do not Tyler, ask me to raise you your children. Tyler, you want to, I can yeah. see. I'm trying to figure out how to word it. But um, one topic that you guys kind of like avoided, even though everything you talked about related to it, and something uh -huh. that I'm personally like really fascinated by, is kind of like the pros and cons of um, like immediate gratification versus like delayed gratification. Because mm. that definitely like, 
relates so much to our how enamored we are by technology and definitely as far as relationships and sex, how that, like that's kind of like the key player in whether you're looking for something lar like immediate or something long term. Um, and do you guys think that in general, not in any specific application, do you think that immediate gratification is better or do you think that you should kind of <laughs> I eat the whole bag of Tate's cookies when I open it like in one sitting every time I try not to but I rationalize that if I eat them all now I won't have to worry about eating them next week but um, <laughs> like it's gonna get eaten no matter what it's yeah, just like right now, right now over the week. Um, I I write a lot about this because there's a component of masochism that's about delayed gratification, like the suspension of satisfaction, where you have like control over whether or not you're going to find something pleasurable by delaying it. Um, and so, Valette, the book that I mentioned earlier, there's like the Lucy Snow gets these letters from a man that she's kind of like fake interested in, and she puts them in a drawer, and she doesn't open them. Um, and she talks about the letters, and she talks about the like you know, what they could possibly say. Um, and it's the one of the most masochistic scenes of the whole book because mm -hmm. it's like, like, it's this exercise of power and being like, I could consume this, but not knowing what it is and the kind of torture of seeing it but not consuming it is more satisfying than what will happen when I open the letter, I read its contents, and then it's done. Um, and so I think there's, I think, I think there's some power in late gratification and immediate gratification if you have control over both of them um, but I think I think a lot of it is tied to that like whether you like are you in control or are the cookies in control oh, right totally the cookies. Um, or the like cookies. are is are you delaying your gratification because you want to delay it or because you think you should or whatever I mean I think that there's a lot of it has to do with how how much like power you have over the, the right. scene sure does that answer your question yeah that was good yeah Anyone else? It's a good question. Jennifer Mitchell, thank you so much for being Thanks. on the Human Podcast. Thank you, Eden College, uh, for having us. It was really lovely. Thank you guys all for being a great audience. Yay! Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review on iTunes and have a wonderful, wonderful. Bye.